When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Blush. I'm your host, Hiva, and... I am ready. I am here. I'm fired up. We're going to have the best fucking hour together. I'm honestly so excited about this episode because we're going to talk about how to be less crazy in dating. And what's really cool about this episode, if you are just like a normal sane person, A, why are you here? <laughs> there are other podcasts. You don't need to be listening to this one. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Please stay. Um, <laughs> My dog's medical bills won't pay themselves. Please stay. Um, But no, but what's really cool about this episode is this five-step framework can actually be applied to any sort of big change that you want to make in your life. So even if you're sane, there's something here for you. So let's get into it. I'm in such a good mood. The apple of my eye, the love of my life, the seminator of my cunt. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I thought I'd at least make it like a full 60 seconds into the show today before I said something really unhinged, but here we are. I did not. <laughs> um, My partner, Ozzy, is back in town. Not for long, but, you know, not for a long time, but for a good time. But the way it has changed everything in my life, A, obviously, like I love him, I missed him, yada, yada, you know, all that dumb bullshit. But more importantly, I have someone here to help me with the pee machine that is my pet. (laughs) The way it has changed my entire life, the way the aura ring every day is like, what? happened because last week we were about to call 911 and say like hey there's definitely a corpse in this apartment but now you're spry you're lively you're sleeping you're moving you're well I was always moving but I mean (laughs) she unfortunately cannot walk herself if she could a lot of those problems would be gone anyway I'm well rested I'm in a good mood I'm fucking excited. I I feel like we haven't done this in so long. And really, I recorded last week, but I may as well have been in a coma last week all episode long. And then before that, I... Um, You know, that was pre-Mexico when I was an entirely different person. That's when I still had hope left in life. But (laughs) that fucking resort in Mexico really shot that right out of me. So... Now here we are. I'm a brand new person and I'm excited and I'm fired up and it's a great episode. So I need to stop vamping. Okay. So is vamping a word? Did I make that up? Is that a thing? Or if it's a word, did I use it correctly? Wait, another tangent. So I bought this top yesterday at H&M. Hold on. Let me, um, oh my God, let me just knock the entire set over. Oh my God. I got my lipstick all over it. No. (laughs) Okay, brief intermission while I fix this. Okay, we are back. I got the lipstick off as best as I could, but it's still kind of there. It's probably going to show in all the clips. It is what it is. We're just going to roll with it. Um... (laughs) So I bought this shirt at H&M yesterday, and I was so excited. I was like, oh, it's so cute. And then when I was putting it on today, I realized it's a maternity shirt because it has these flaps, and... um, you can like pull a boob out to uh, 
breastfeed. So that's cool. I'm now wearing maternity clothing, I guess. Well, not maternity. It's a postpartum shirt. And all I want to say is, what postpartum woman is this size? Like, whatever. Okay, let's just move right along. So two weeks ago, no, I'm sorry, four weeks ago, we talked about why we go crazy in dating, right? We talked about the origins, the childhood trauma, the nervous system, all that fun stuff. And then two weeks ago, we talked about the types of crazy in dating. And in all of these episodes, I told a lot of unhinged stories about myself, most notably a few years ago, like six years ago at this point, I think five years ago, who knows? Time math is not my strong suit. When I totally fucking lost it on my ex, the comedian, at a fish show, at New Year's Eve, at MSG, and broke up with him at the fish show, on New Year's Eve, at MSG. So this week, we're going to talk about how to not act like a crazy lunatic like I did. And I have a five-step plan for you guys. And the first step is to really regulate your nervous system. Now, I'm going to do a brief overview of what the nervous system is. An emphasis on brief here because we don't have all day. I have shirts that I need to destroy with lipstick. I have maternity clothing that I need to go buy. No, real talk. Uh, the camera's probably going to die at this rate because we had to take a whole intermission for me to get lipstick off of my boob and it's still fucking there and it's going to be there in all of the clips. But you know what? When you guys watch the clips on Instagram and TikTok, you're going to be like, oh, I know the story behind why there is a red stripe on this bitch's and no one else is going to know and you're going to feel like such an insider. So that's a fun thing for us. I mean, I could have really in the time that I did all this, I could have just fucking changed my shirt. But here we are. I did not. Um, So yeah, we're going to do the nervous system kind of briefly because honestly, like we could spend 16 hours on this. I mean, I have an entire fucking course on it for a reason. So no one has the time. We're just going to kind of briefly run through it. So the nervous system is a complex network of nerves and cells that transmit signals between different parts of the body, allowing them to communicate and coordinate various functions. Um, There are two main parts, the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system is the brain and the spinal cord. The peripheral nervous system is all of the nerves outside of the central nervous system that connect the brain and the spinal cord to the rest of the body. Now, the peripheral nervous system is split into two parts. There's the somatic nervous system, which controls voluntary movements, and the autonomic nervous system, which regulates involuntary bodily functions like our heart rate, our digestion, respiration, and glandular secretions. Doesn't that sound sexy? So we spend a lot of time really talking about the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is traditionally split into two branches, the parasympathetic, um, a.k.a. the rest and digest, and the sympathetic nervous system, a.k.a. fight or flight. Now, it's actually a little bit more complex than that. First of all, in the sympathetic nervous system, it's actually fight, flight, freeze and fawn. Those are the four sympathetic nervous system responses. But moreover, we really kind of ascribe to the polyvagal theory of the nervous system, which actually states that rather than the two states, there are six states of the nervous system. We are not going to talk about all six states of the nervous system here today. If you guys are curious about that, I have a whole episode on the nervous system polyvagal theory and attachment theory and how these things intersect, so you can go back and listen to that. I'm always happy to revisit the topic, too, because, you know, it's interesting, and I I think sometimes revisiting things helps us get deeper, yada, yada. So, you know what? You can go back, watch that episode, and then if you have questions, let me know. We can get into it. Um, You know, I really miss how fun and sparkly I was before the whole debacle with the shirt, (laughs) but it is what it is. Okay, 
So instead of getting into all six polyvagal states, I do want to talk about the three primary states, two of which we kind of addressed already. So there's the safe and social or parasympathetic or what's in polyvagal theory called ventral vagal. This is when you feel calm, you feel connected, you're able to communicate effectively. Um, You're able to engage in social interactions, form relationships, seek support from others. Um, On a physical sense, you feel calm and secure and you're able to digest food, you're able to go to sleep, you're able to relax, and you're able to um, perform sexually. Sympathetic arousal or fight or flight is a state where you're activated in response to a perceived threat or a stressor. So it's called fight or flight because traditionally this is when you see a lion or a tiger and your body's like, holy shit, we need to do something. We either need to fight this bitch or more likely we're going to run away from it. You know, our ancestors that chose to fight the lions and the tigers are generally dead because... It's not really a fair fight. Like, they're going to win, right? So the ancestors of ours that were smarter, that ran away, are the ones that survived. And I have this theory that the reason that everyone has anxiety nowadays, I mean, I think there's a lot of factors to it. I think a lot of our modern lifestyle contributes to it. Certainly, the amount of light exposure that we have, blue and green light exposure, is a huge factor. But I do think to a certain extent, it's also evolutionary. Like, the people who did not have sufficient sympathetic arousal died. Like they just weren't aware of the perceived threats. The ones that survived were the ones who were more alert to threats. And now we've evolved and we don't really have the same types of physical threats in our environment anymore. And a lot of it are things that we perceive as threats that really are not the types of threats that we're used to. Anyway, that's a whole tangent for another time. So when you are in sympathetic arousal, Your nervous system is preparing your body for action. So it increases your heart rate, it increases blood pressure, it it increases your respiration rate, and you experience heightened alertness, increased muscle tension, and your body releases stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. This is all, again, to uh, prepare you to fight or flee. Blood is also moved away from your inessential functions like digestion and sex organs and relocated to the muscles and the brain to prepare you for the fighting or the fleeing, right? Makes sense. Like your body's like, this is really not the time to be fucking. Like we don't need to digest the chocolate cake right now. There is a life-threatening emergency situation that we are dealing with. Now, the third state that we're going to talk about today is dorsal vagal or freeze or shutdown. And this is triggered by situations that are perceived as threatening, dangerous, and overwhelming. It's usually the result of either perpetually being in fight or flight Or it's when the nervous system perceives a threat that actually can't be managed through sympathetic arousal, so it just sends you into full shutdown as a protection mechanism. And kind of a simpler way to think of it is, have you ever been so overwhelmed that like at first you get really anxious and you're like overthinking and you're like, I don't know what to do. And then you just get to the point where it's like you just go kind of dark and you're like, It's like you kind of don't give a shit anymore. Like you're so anxious that you just can't even feel it anymore. That's a shutdown. It's a, it's it's a lot of disassociation. It's a lot of numbness. Like, do you know any people who are so chill? Like you're always like, wow, like, you know, Sean is just such like a chill, laid back person. Like he just doesn't really seem to care about anything. Very apathetic, very emotionless, just even keel to the point where it's like kind of almost annoying, that is dorsal vagal. That's dorsal vagal shutdown. Um, this is also really, it really intersects with avoidant attachment. So people with avoidant attachment tend to spend a lot of their time in dorsal vagal, whereas people with anxious attachment tend to spend a lot of time in the sympathetic arousal, the fight or flight, which makes sense, right? Whew, okay. 
So that's just a very, very, very simplified brief overview of the nervous system. Now, I want to talk about why we need to regulate the nervous system before we move on to how to regulate the nervous system. And again, this is going to be very brief, but there are two main reasons why we need to regulate the nervous system and why this is the very first step. And it's a step that truly, truly cannot be skipped. So the first reason is because all of the quote unquote crazy behaviors that we've been talking about, all of them live in a state of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Um, That's funny. In my notes, I wrote Dawn. (laughs) So for example, my New Year's Eve meltdown was 100% because I was in sympathetic arousal. If you remember that story, I talked about how I was really anxious because this was the night that the comedian was supposed to like post me to his grid and I was anxious that he wasn't actually going to do it. And I was anxious about what it was actually doing it. You know, I was anxious about both sides of it. I was excited about it. You know, it had me all activated on top of that. I had not fucking eaten. And let's just take a brief moment to talk about what happens to your nervous system when you're hungry. So hunger activates the sympathetic nervous system. It prepares the body for action by increasing heart rate, blood pressure, and respiratory rate. It also releases the stress hormones like adrenaline and noradrenaline, which help mobilize energy stores to increase alertness. This is all to really prepare you to find food. Um, And the low blood sugar levels impair cognitive function, impair concentration, and impair decision-making. Hunger leads to irritability, anxiety, and decreased tolerance for stress because the body is prioritizing obtaining food over doing anything else. So the body isn't out here being like, oh, this triggering thing happened, but you know what? There's probably a good reason for it. And why don't I relax for now? And then we can have a conversation later. It doesn't have the energy to go through that whole thought process because the only energy that it has right now, it's keeping, it's using to keep you alive. So it just can't handle nuance and rational thought the way that it could when you're well fed. So essentially what I'm saying is hunger is very real. It's rooted in the nervous system and the way our hunger cues affect our neurochemistry. So my meltdown that night was 100% caused by the fact that I was in fight or flight. Now, if I'd been in a regulated nervous system state, right, if I was in my ventral vagal, if I was, you know, in my rest and digest I would have probably still been irritated, right? I would have been irritated by the whole circumstances, by the months and months and months of things that had built up. All of those things that would have irritated me and him bringing that friend and probably reneging on the whole promise he had made to like post me to his grid, yada, yada. Yes, that would have irritated me. It would have bothered me. But I would have had the wherewithal to be like, okay, this is annoying and it's a conversation we can have later or we can have tomorrow or like, fuck it, we can even have a calmly this conversation right now. But I would not have like broken up with him at a fish show on New Year's Eve at MSG in front of people, in front of people who recognize him from being mildly famous. I would not have like caused a scene. I would not have started chugging drinks. I would not have blocked his phone number and ran away from him and then changed my mind and run back to him and just acted like a fucking lunatic and embarrassed the shit out of myself and embarrassed him. I wouldn't have done all of those fucking things because I would have had the resources available to soothe myself in that moment and then dealt with it later. But I didn't have any of those resources because I was in such extreme fight or flight that I was just seeing red. Like I didn't, it wasn't a priority for my body to be able to regulate itself. Okay, so that's the reason reason number one why we do the regulation because just by regulating your nervous system, 75% of your crazy behaviors are just straight gonna go away because the crazy behaviors are happening because you're not regulated, right? So the more that you're regulated, the more all of this shit goes away. But then on top of that, regulating your nervous system is really critical to be able to do the next steps. The next steps are really deep work. It's essentially trauma therapy that we're doing on ourselves. And I know trauma is a big word, so I'm trying to not use the word trauma as much, but that's really what it is. So 
you have to regulate the nervous system first. A dysregulated nervous system is more vulnerable to stressors and triggers. So you really can't cope with difficult memories because those difficult memories are stressful to your nervous system and they're not going to come up unless you're ready to handle them. Um, I have a story about a Blush Academy member who signed up for the Blush Academy before the nervous system course had dropped. And she started doing the um, attachment, the attachment styles course, and nothing really was coming up for her. So she's doing all these neural uh, rewiring practices. And every time she'd do them, like it was kind of blank. She's like, I don't understand. Like I had a really good childhood. Like everything was great. Like it makes no sense. Yet she's having all of these symptoms, right? Like she was basically experiencing like every time she would date someone when they were together, she was perfectly fine. But if they were apart, like even for a few hours, she would freak out. Like she would just constantly want to be with her partners, like physically be with them all the time. And it would get really messy if her partners like had to travel for work or like she told me a story about one time her a guy she was dating. We'll call her Olivia, by the way, for the sake of this, because I'm going to talk about about her a lot in this episode. So one time she's dating this guy and he went out on a boys night. And so she's like trying to deal. She's trying to cope, but her anxiety is getting the best of her. So she fucking drove her car to the bar they were going to and hung out in her car outside of the bar, trying to peek inside of the bar, not even because she thought he was like fucking around or would be cheating or like, I I think those thoughts went through her head, but she literally just couldn't stand the separation. Like it was too much for her. She could not handle it. And shit like that would happen all the time when she was dating guys. Like anytime they were separated for any reason, she would freak the fuck out and she would do anything that she could. Like she's told me story after story after story of just crazy shit she would do, like pretending she hurt herself, pretending she got sick, like pretending like there was a fire in her apartment, just like creating these fake emergencies to be like, oh my God, come, you have to help me. You have to help me because she just could not tolerate any sort of separation from her partners. So she's experiencing all these things. She signs up for the Blush Academy. She's doing the nerve, uh, the attachment styles course, but she's like, I don't know, like nothing's coming up. Like I had a great childhood. The nervous system course drops. She starts doing the nervous system course and A, she's now just not feeling as much anxiety as she used to feel, which is great. But B, once she started working on the nervous system course, a lot of stuff started coming up. A lot of stuff started clicking. And we're going to talk about that stuff now in step two. Well, not yet. Actually, first we're going to talk about how to regulate your nervous system. And then we're going to talk about the stuff that came up for Olivia once she regulated her nervous system. So there are two real things that we need to do to regulate our nervous system. First is you need to really recognize what nervous system state you're in and If you're not in a rest or digest state, you need to know how to get yourself back to that ventral vagal state. So that might involve down-regulating if you're in sympathetic activation, or if you're in a lower state like a dorsal vagal, a shutdown type state, you might need to up-regulate to get back to ventral vagal. But it really starts with number one, awareness, and then B, doing what you need to do to get back to the place. And those are reactive tools. And then the other side of the coin is when you are in a ventral vagal state, when you're in that calm, when you're not like, you know, going crazy one way or another, then you have to take proactive measures to increase your resilience and your tolerance for stress. And that'll make it such that you don't get to the fight or flight, the sympathetic activation or the freeze, the shutdown state as often. And when you are there, you're able to rebound quicker. So the more proactive tools you do, the less you need to do reactive tools. And I like to use this analogy and it's a funny analogy because it's about cars and I don't drive a car. I haven't driven a car in like 15 years. I know nothing about cars. Nevertheless, not quite 15 years, I think 13 years to be exact. Um, But when you have a car, there are certain things that you do that are proactive tools to keep the car functioning well, right? You refuel 
probably every few days. You, you know, pump up the tires to maintain tire pressure. You get oil changes. You change your brake pads. These are things that you do to keep your car running well. If you stop doing these things, your car will break down more frequently or just stop running, right? I mean, if you stop refueling your car, it's not going to run after a couple of days. And then there are things that you do reactively, like if your car battery dies or your car overheats or there is an oil leak, etc., you have to go to the mechanic to get those things fixed. The more you invest in proactive tools, the less frequently you will need the reactive tools. And it's the exact same thing for our nervous system. So you do the proactive tools to really build the capacity and build the resilience. And then you use the reactive tools when, you know what, shit happens. Like you're gonna fall off. No matter how many proactive tools you do, there are things that are gonna activate your sympathetic nervous system. And eventually there might be things that also send you into dorsal vagal. And that's okay because you have the tools, you have the mechanic, you know how to get it fixed. But when you do the proactive tools regularly, you won't really need the reactive tools nearly as much. So for the nervous system, proactive tools are eating foods that support your brain and gut health, sleeping enough, taking care of your digestion. And honestly, the sleeping enough and the digestion piece is a very chicken and egg scenario because when you're really dysregulated, you're going to have a hard time sleeping and digesting and like having bowel movements and things like that. But then on the other hand, when you're not well slept and you're not, you know, pooping regularly, you're going to have a really hard time regulating. So you just kind of have to work with them in tandem. Um, active breath work, restorative breath work, meditation, movement, and then doing difficult things is a really great way to adapt your nervous system to stress. So what happens there is you introduce your body to a low dose of a stressor so that your body deals with that stress and then it becomes stronger and it can better deal with stress. I hate to use this word because it's so controversial right now, but it's kind of like a stress vaccine, right? So the idea with the vaccine is you inject yourself with a low dose of the disease and your body fights the disease and overcomes it and then you no longer face that disease ideally, right? That's how it's supposed to work. Um, It's the same thing with these like doing really difficult things. What you're doing is you're intentionally putting your body in a state of acute stress and your body deals with that stress. And then the next time it's facing some kind of unintentional stressor, it's going to be like, oh, this is easy peasy. We do shit like this all the time. I know exactly how to handle it, right? And those types of like intense, difficult, acute stressors are intentional cold exposure, really active breath work, um, really hard exercise, things like that. And then the reactive tools are things like restorative breath work, um, grounding techniques. A really good example of a grounding technique that everyone probably knows by now is the 54321, right? You list like five things you see. I like to say five colors that you see because we see so many fucking things that it's hard to concentrate. But if you just pick five colors and then like right now I see orange, I see a blush pink, I see white, I see black, and I see like a bone color. Um, uh, four things that you can hear, three things that you can feel. Uh, you know, they say two things you can smell, one thing you can taste. I find smell and taste to sometimes be a little bit like whatever. So like if you really don't have access to those, like I often can't smell or taste things. So I might make it like two things I'm grateful for, one thing I like about myself, right? It's just a quick grounding technique. Um, and then self-soothing techniques. Um, a really good example of this is butterfly tapping. So you put your hands on opposite shoulders and you alternate tapping. You want to do this in a slow way, not in a fast way, because a fast way is like bilateral stimulation for um, uh, processing trauma. So that can be a little intense, especially if your nervous system is not regulated. But to do it in a really slow way is just a really great self-soothing tactic when you're feeling overwhelmed, stress triggered, etc. 
Now, if you're in a lower nervous system state, like a dorsal vagal shutdown, you'll actually need to do more active things to re-regulate yourself. So you might want to like dance or sing or um, do like mobilizing breath work. By the way, all of these tools are in the nervous system course. Um, And again, we can elaborate on them later. Today is not the day because we have other things that we're trying to get through. So once you get through the nervous system regulation, step two is to work through the unprocessed events that caused you pain and shame in your childhood. If you are doing a lot of crazy shit in your relationships and dating situations, I can guarantee you that you witnessed a lot of chaos growing up, right? Personally, I've told you now story after story after story about how I'm picked fights and just acted like a fucking lunatic in dating situations. Not surprisingly, I grew up in a household where there was a lot of fucking fighting and Even worse than all of the fighting, I would say, is that there was no repair. So it would be like World War III in my childhood house, like screaming, yelling, throwing things, breaking things, shattered glass, broken furniture, fists through like fist holes and doors and walls and shit like that. And then the next morning you wake up No one even acknowledges what happened. It's like nothing ever happened. Do you know how traumatizing that is to a child? Fighting is one thing, but then to never have it acknowledged again, that is a type of trauma that's honestly really hard to overcome. So that's kind of what I was working with. And here's the thing, the fighting really normalized chaos and conflict for me, right? Because like my brain was like, this is normal. This is completely normal behavior. That's just a Tuesday, you know? But then it also imprinted this notion that explosive fighting is normal, fine, and that there are no consequences because the next day everyone just went about as though nothing ever happened. So even though I hated it, my brain was really familiar and therefore really comfortable with it because remember this, our brain's only job is to keep us alive. It's not trying to make us happy. It's just trying to keep us alive. So anything that we experience and we survive, our brains are usually like, well, let's do that again because we didn't die. And so my only job is to make sure you don't die. And I know that you can experience this and not die. So yeah, let's do, let's do it again. Like it's better than not dying than the dying, you know, like that's literally how our brain works. So it just constantly recreates these situations that it's familiar with because it knows that you can survive them. So When you have something, and yours doesn't have to be nearly as chaotic and crazy as mine, or it could be a lot worse, quite frankly. Like, people have had it a lot worse than I've had in my childhood. Um, So when you experience a lot of these things, what happens is... Hold on, I just want to make sure the camera's still... Yeah, yeah, it's running. Okay, um... What happens, it's all stored in the body. It's all, like, imperfectly processed. And what you really have to do is process it. And the way that I like to do it and the way that I teach it in the Blush Academy is you pull up a memory. So for me, I might pull up a memory of like a really crazy chaotic fight that happened in my childhood house. And you do this in a very, A, you really have to have regulated the nervous system first. Otherwise, you're going to re-traumatize yourself when you try to do this. It's really, really important that you work with a very regulated nervous system. And then you pull up the memory in a very like deep hypnotic state. So I have neural rewiring practices that help you get in that state. And then they really cue you to, okay, pull up this memory now. And then I like to first do a round of bilateral stimulation just to take the intensity of the emotion away. And this is based on a modality of trauma therapy called EMDR. Not going to get into it right now. We just don't have time. And then once it's a little bit less emotionally charged, usually what I like to do is I like to visualize my adult self, my current self, or even like a higher, better version of my current self to step into this memory and comfort the child. Me. So I'll usually go, I'll approach them, I'll be like, hey, this isn't your fault. Like, 
None of what happened here is because of you. It's really unfortunate that you had to be exposed to this, but it's okay. I'm here for you. I'm always here for you. I'm always with you. I might even hug the child version of me and really just interact with them. And then I'll do anything else that I feel like I need in that moment. Sometimes I'll like go in and fight the people. I'll yell at them. Like I've done so many neural rewiring practices where I visualize the higher version of myself step in and just fucking give it to my dad. Be like, you fucking asshole. Why the fuck would you do this? You're terrible. I just really unload on him. It's not actually happening. It doesn't fucking matter. And then I will reimagine the situation differently in a way that feels better. So sometimes I've done that where I visualize the fight actually happening, but then I visualize everyone sitting and talking about it in a civilized manner and including me and explaining things to me and saying, you know, we're so sorry, like we're dysregulated people. We have our own trauma that we're working with and we let it get the best of us. And like, this is what happened and this is how we can avoid it in the future. Again, the situation might be different for you. Now, I want to go back to that Blush Academy member. What do we call Olivia? Olivia. That's not her real name. And I also clear talking about her situation on the pod, but I just think it illustrates it so well. So Olivia really couldn't figure out why she would freak out so much anytime her boyfriends weren't physically attached to the hip at her. And she really thought she had the perfect childhood with a really attentive mom. She goes through the nervous system course. She's feeling a lot more regulated. And then one day we're talking and she's like, hey, um, I'm starting to think I might know why I struggle with this so much. And I'm like, okay, talk to me. And she revealed that her mom's dad died when he was fixing the roof and like he like fell off the roof or something. And ever since then, her mom, Olivia's mom, became really, really risk averse. And growing up, she wouldn't let her mom wouldn't let her take surfing lessons. She wouldn't let her skateboard. She wouldn't let her scuba dive. Now, I don't know where the fuck Olivia grew up <laughs> that she wanted to do all of these activities that weren't available to her. But nevertheless, her mom wouldn't let her do it. Her mom would let her leave the house without adult supervision until she was 17. She said, there was one specific memory she has where it was this girl's 10th birthday and it was at a trampoline park, which like so fucking fun. Does anyone know if there are any trampoline parks in or around New York City? Because like a bitch wants to go. It sounds so fun. Anyway, so they're 10. They're there. The parents are there. And her mom wouldn't let her jump on the trampolines at this birthday party. So she had to sit at the tables and eat cake with all of the adults and watch all of the other kids have fun and play and scream and laugh while she had to sit there with the fucking adults. Like, think like that is trauma. That is a traumatizing memory. I mean, it's not trauma like in the way of abuse and, you know, like fighting and throwing things and car accidents, but it's still fucking trauma. So once Olivia, and she remembered that all of these things happened, but she just wasn't thinking of them. But once she was in a more regulated state, she was able to see these memories and able to connect how her mom's constant supervision and chaperoning of her imprinted this idea in her head that love means that you have to constantly be together. You have to constantly be attached. And then on top of that, she also interpreted any sort of like adrenaline or excitement as being really dangerous and being really bad and being this uh, like thing that was going to like literally be life or death because her mom had that notion of it being life or death because her dad did something that was kind of dangerous and he died. So of course, like that's been passed down now as generational trauma towards Olivia. And now anything that's like causing her a little bit of like mild activation, she's like, no, 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 I can't do it. I can't like that separation, the activation from the separation would get so extreme that she would resort to these crazy tactics. Sorry to call you crazy, but you know, um, you know, <laughs> takes one to know one. <laughs> the, like she would resort to these intense extreme measures to reestablish connection. So 
Olivia then uses the neural rewiring practices in the Blush Academy to pull up these incidents. So for the trampoline incident, for example, she first does the, you know, she pulls it up. She does the bilateral stimulation until she's no longer supercharged thinking about it. And then she reimagined the whole thing going differently. So she imagined her mom being like, hey, you know what? Like, go jump on the trampoline with your friends, have fun. And she visualized herself going and playing with all the kids and jumping and feeling the excitement and the laughter and the screaming and the, oh my God, ah, am I going to fall? No, like all of that fun shit the kids should be feeling. And her mom sitting there and watching her have fun with her friends. Okay. So that's step two. You want to, and so for Olivia, for example, she pulled up every specific incident that she could think of that had this like pain attached to it. And she repeated this process for every single incident she could think of. Same with me. I pulled up every single painful memory of these crazy chaotic fights and I did a neural rewiring practice on every single one until they no longer had an emotional charge for me. So that's step two. Now, step three, once you're through all of that, and that's a lot, is you want to reimagine a new childhood with a secure upbringing. So there are five pillars of what a secure upbringing is, and that's to feel safe, to feel seen and known, to be comforted, soothed, and reassured, to be valued, and to feel supported to explore. So in my life, I didn't feel safe because there was fighting and it was really chaotic and it felt really dangerous. I didn't feel seen and known because I had to hide a lot from my parents. And this is different from the fighting. This is just because I had like strict Middle Eastern parents who really like didn't let me date or even like interact with boys in any sort of way. And I was a very boy crazy child. So I really felt like I had to suppress and hide so much of myself from my parents because they wouldn't accept me for who I am actually was. So I definitely didn't feel seen and known. And I also really didn't feel safe to explore. Again, I didn't feel safe, period. But I also didn't feel safe to explore because they were really strict. They actually were a little bit similar to Olivia's mom in that. So I really didn't have that safety. So once I got through working through the painful and the shameful memories, then I would go and reimagine a childhood with parents who were a lot more liberal, a lot more progressive, who would talk to me about boys who were involved in my social life, who would, you know, let me go on sleepovers, let me go on dates. Um, you know, I would literally like, so there's neural rewiring practices where you can reimagine a secure childhood. And I'm also actually going to come out with a full inner child course where you can do this a lot more detailed for every stage of upbringing. So that's coming to the Blush Academy this year, hopefully. <laughs> There's a lot more coming before that. There's a lot happening in the Blush Academy right now, guys. Get fucking excited. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, but what you do, so I use that one neural rewiring practice where it's like imagining a secure childhood. And once I get in a really deep hypnotic state, I'll do things like visualize, um, you know, parents who were like really cool and progressive and like a boy came and picked me up for a date and knocked on the door and came in and my parents met him and they talk and like, you know, after the date, my parents would be like, oh my God, how was it? Did you have fun? Blah, blah. You know, just these parents who really accepted me and saw all parts of me. And I really felt accepted and loved for who I truly, truly was. With Olivia's example, she, once she worked through all of the intense memories that she could remember, then she would use that um, secure upbringing neural rewiring practice and she would visualize a childhood where her mom took her to surfing lessons and drove her to the surfing lessons and would drop her off and be like, have fun, babe. And then afterwards, pick her up and be like, oh my God, did you have a good time? Blah, blah. And just really visualize her mom encouraging her to sign up and really being supportive and letting her be her authentic self and her authentic self. You know, my authentic self is a whore who wanted to fuck all the boys. Olivia's authentic self was someone who really wanted all these adventures. She wanted to scuba. She wanted to skateboard. She wanted to surf. I mean, not me, but that's who Olivia authentically is. So she had to really visualize a childhood where she had a parent who was very supportive of these things. And on visualization, I just want to touch on this a little bit, where we're going to talk about it more in step four. 
you want to be as detailed as possible. You want to have as much emotion as possible and you want to visualize in the first person. So that means you're visualizing these things happening when you're in your body, not like you're watching yourself on a TV screen. But more on that in a second. Okay. Step four is mental rehearsal. Now, mental rehearsal is a cognitive technique used to improve performance, enhance learning, prepare for future events by mentally stimulating specific action scenarios and outcomes. It involves vividly imagining yourself engaging in a task or an activity, visualizing each step, and rehearsing the associated thoughts, emotions, and sensations. When you become really present with what you're visualizing, your brain and your body actually don't know the difference of what's happening internally for you, like the visualization and what's happening externally, like what's actually happening in the 3D world around us. So your biology actually adapts as though it's really happening and it's really fucking wild. And it's one of those things that I would not believe if I hadn't read study after study after study on it. And I've talked about a lot of these studies before, but there are two that I want to touch on. So one is um, a Harvard piano study. Researchers took volunteers who had never played piano and split them into two groups. Group one practiced a five-finger piano scale, you know, like the do, re, mi, fa, so, do, re, mi, fa, so, do, re, mi, fa, so, you know, the C, D, E, F, G, the five-finger piano scale for two hours every day for five days. I'm sorry, two hours is a really long fucking time to do that. These, and I think they're volunteers. They weren't even paid for this shit. Couldn't be me. Anyway, group two just visualized themselves doing it. They didn't actually touch a fucking piano. They just visualized themselves doing it for two hours every day for five days. After five days, they took brain scans of both groups and found that both groups created a dramatic number of new neural circuits in the region of their brain that controls finger movements. Identical. There was no difference between the two groups Both groups had their brains changed in the same way. Even the one group didn't even touch a fucking piano. They just visualized themselves doing it. There's another study I'd like to reference a lot from Cleveland Clinic. So participants there visualized themselves flexing one of their biceps as hard as they could five times a week for 12 weeks. By the end of the study, the bicep that they were visualizing had increased in strength by 13.5%, even though they did not physically train at all. Now, when I read about these studies, something clicked in my head where I was like, okay, So people are able to literally change their physical bodies just by visualizing things. If people can change their physical bodies by visualizing, then they can sure as shit change their behavior by visualizing because that seems a lot fucking easier. So I started experimenting with this first on myself and then on other people, and I found really profound results. So it's actually in the Blush Academy Attachment Styles course where you, there's a neural rewiring practice where you mentally rehearse taking different actions in face of your usual triggers. So let's say um, you're usually really triggered when you're waiting for a text, right? You're waiting for a text and you don't get one and you start to spiral. So what you would do in that scenario is you would visualize yourself being in this situation where you're triggered and you're not getting a text, but instead of resorting to your usual behavior, you visualize yourself handling it differently. You visualize yourself self-soothing. You visualize yourself being like, it's not that big of a deal. It's probably just busy or whatever. You visualize yourself doing different things. For example, Olivia used the mental rehearsal neural rewiring practice and would visualize herself dating someone. He would go on vacation or go for boys night or whatever, and she would visualize herself staying calm. She would visualize herself not stalking him. She would visualize herself not creating a fake emergency to get him to come to her apartment, right? 
And now I want to reference another study because I want to talk about the in-first-person thing that I talked about. So there's a more recent study conducted by the University of Texas at San Antonio Cleveland Clinic and the Kessler Foundation. So they just really tag-teamed the study, I guess. And they asked subjects to visualize themselves contracting their elbow flexor muscles and urge the muscle to flex as strong and as hard as possible for 15-minute sessions five days a week for 12 weeks. And they broke their participants into three groups. There was a control group that just didn't visualize at all. There was a group that was visualizing in the third person. So that meant like when they closed their eyes and they were visualizing, they could see themselves. They could see their faces. It's like they were watching themselves in a recording. And then there was a group, the third group, who did first person visualization. So that would be like if you're in your body. So they're seeing out of their eyes. It's like if you were to put on like an ocular, ocular, what's that called? The um, VR thing, the virtual reality, right? It's you're not seeing yourself on a screen. You have the POV. It's like, have you ever seen POV porn? (laughs) It's like POV porn. Same exact thing, total same thing. And this is interesting. The control group had no changes after the 12 weeks. The third person group showed a little bit of change, but not significant change. But the first person visualization group showed a 10.8% increase in strength. So the takeaways from this study is number one, For visualization to be effective, you really want to visualize yourself in the first person, in your actual body, not observing yourself from the outside, but actually being in your body. And the second takeaway from this is what the fuck is an elbow flexor muscle? Like, what the fuck is that? (laughs) But That's a problem for another time. Now, I used mental rehearsal for a lot of things. But one thing that was really notable for me is I had a long history of having an impossible time exiting relationships. So no matter how unhappy I was in a relationship, I would hold myself hostage in the relationship and really just try to convince myself like, no, this is great. Everything's great. I did this a lot with the comedian, honestly. I would say for the last month of our relationship, I fully knew I wasn't into him. Like I literally had the ick. Like I was like embarrassed to be in public places with him. Like I was like contracting into myself when I was around him. Like I knew I didn't want to be with him yet. I was so convinced myself that I wanted to be with him. And it would always be the same thing. I'd convince myself I wanted to be with them. And then I would subconsciously start acting really fucking crazy and picking fights because I was trying to subconsciously push them away. And then when they eventually would leave me, then I couldn't accept that it was over and I'd fucking lose my mind. And I knew once like, you know, I'd actually gotten over the breakup with the comedian. I knew that a lot of the problem was caused by the fact that I was holding myself hostage in this relationship that I really didn't want to be in. And I just kept thinking the next time I date someone, I have to be able to walk away when I know it's wrong. So I started visualizing myself breaking up with someone when I knew the relationship wasn't working. And when I started, like, I would really do this detailed. So I'd like visualize myself sitting down with them, having the talk. I'd really get detailed about like how it felt, like how it would feel to do this breakup. Literally what I would say, like I'd rehearse what I would say. And this came in handy when I was dating Van Guy. So when I was dating Van Guy, I started to feel that feeling of like, like, oh, I don't know about this. I don't think I want to be in this relationship. And, you know, per usual, I was having a hard time. But because I had done all that mental rehearsal and I'd also done all of these other steps by then, I was able to then sit down and be like, hey, I don't want to date you anymore. I'm so sorry. But I was able to pull that trigger. And that was the moment that I knew that all of the work that I had done had paid off and that I really had moved to secure attachment. That was the final test for me because that was always the biggest manifestation of my anxious attachment was my inability to walk away from relationships. So when I knew I had done that, I was like, boom, I'm golden. I'm I'm ready. Put me in coach. She is ready. I'm going to go scream at Andrew Reid's face like Travis Kelsey did in the Super Bowl. You like that Super Bowl reference? <laughs> 
Okay, and now for our last step. Excuse me, while my cards go flying everywhere, you have to put it into practice. And the biggest thing here is partner selection. Now, Going back to my breakup with the comedian, I just love dragging the comedian so much. Sometimes I fantasize about revealing who it actually is because such a douchebag and he really deserves it, but I won't do that. The main reason why I won't do that is because I've talked about his penis so much. Like if I hadn't talked about that, maybe I would, but <laughs> no, I still wouldn't. But like now I definitely won't. So when the comedian and I broke up, I mentioned I was in extreme denial about like I was like, we're going to get back together. Like he loves me. He loves me. And I remember right before we broke up, we had signed up to work with this relationship coach and you know, he's like going on and on. Oh my God, I've never felt love like this. I've like never known that it's possible. Like this is my first time truly being in love, blah, blah, blah. I I didn't even know it was possible to feel like this, yada, yada, yada. Just would not stop gushing about how much he loved me, right? And then I have this one meltdown and he literally won't talk to me. And she had a session with him and she's like, what the fuck, dude? Like five minutes ago, you're literally crying about how much you love her and now you won't speak to her. And he's like, no, I'm done. And then I remember I had a session with her and this is after the breakup and I'm like, no, we're going to get back together. I know it. And she's like, why would you even want to date someone like that? He's crazy. Like I've never been more pissed off by a client in my entire life. Who does this? Who behaves like this? Like you shouldn't even want him. Like this is disgusting. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like I just could not see it. Right. And then I remember a couple weeks later, I was watching this episode of Vanderpump Rules. Keep in mind, this is five, six years ago and five years ago, I believe. Um, and it was Stasi had had a birthday party. It was the birthday party where her and Ariana did a joint birthday party. And it was like the winter and summer theme where they were all like, you know, in white silvery type of shit and they had rented this cool ass house and Stasi had a full fucking meltdown the night of her birthday and like smashed her phone and like all this crazy shit right and then the episode after the birthday meltdown we see a conversation with Bo and I remember thinking because her meltdown was very similar to my fish New Year's Eve MSG meltdown right very similar dare I say her meltdown was actually a little bit worse than mine nevertheless I remember like mentally preparing myself I was like Bo is going to be so pissed and like what she did was so wrong and like so fucked up right because I was putting myself in this situation and I was so committed to the comedian still being my person that I was and uh, unequivocally what I did was wrong I'm not in any way shape or form saying what I did was right but I was willing to make it more wrong because that would make the comedian more right. And that would allow me to still cling on to hope for me and the comedian. But when Bo comes in and they have this conversation and he's just really like, he's like, hey, what you did really hurt my feelings. And he's being really vulnerable, but he's talking to her. And then it cuts to his like green screen talking head interview. And he's like, of course, we're going to work through it. Like, I love her. I'm in love with her. It's not like we're going to break up because she has one meltdown. And that hit me like a ton of breaks because that was the first time that I was like, whoa, maybe I shouldn't be with the comedian. Like maybe actually I should be with someone like Bo who has a shred of understanding, who has a shred of compassion, who like, no, he's right. Like you shouldn't just walk away from someone because of one meltdown. Now, technically it's two, but that's neither here nor there. But that's really the first kind of breakthrough I had in that breakup. Now, for partner selection, I will say, generally speaking, go for the opposite of what you've been going for. So if you're someone who has a history of settling for people that you're not that into, 
be a little more discerning. If you have a history of going for fuck boys, choose people who are a little less exciting in the beginning. If you um, have a tendency to cut people off really fast, like you have that more avoidant tendency, then you might actually need to give people more chances and like ride things out a little bit longer. For me, I really had a history of trying to date people who I wasn't actually that into, but who I was trying to force myself to be into because they seemed like safe or they seemed like the right pick. So I really wanted to hold out for someone who I was actually really, really, really into and really excited about, but who also was more tolerant, more forgiving, more understanding, and not someone who I had to walk on eggshells around. And so... I now have that exact thing in Aussie. Like from the get-go, I was so fucking into him, but I also could like so be myself and like never, ever had to walk on eggshells around him. Um, I want to go back to the example of Olivia. So Olivia had a history of dating really controlling guys. And this makes a lot of sense given her history with her mom. She associated this type of controlling behavior as being love. And that's really common that we tend to like go for people who are a lot like our partners. You know, I was actually just watching the Tracy Chapman, Luke Holmes um, rendition of Fast Car that they performed at the Grammys. Like, fucking beautiful song and their performance. Oh, the way Luke would look at her while she was singing, like, ah, ah, be still. So I'm, you know, singing along, crying, etc. But one thing that really made me cry was just really listening to the lyrics of the song and how heartbreaking they are. Basically, in the beginning of the song, she is talking about her alcoholic father and how she wants to run away and build this other life with this guy, right? So they run away and she gets a job you know, at the market as a checkout girl. I also love when Luke sings that line. Like it just does something to me. I don't know. I think maybe it's, it's a marker of the times and how much less precious. Like I think like 30 years ago, a dude wouldn't cover a chick's song and sing that he was a checkout girl, you know, like he would have changed the lyrics, but I just think it's, it's really of the times not to like Luke should be a checkout girl at the market. You know, (laughs) we love that for him anyway. But then later in the song, you see that the guy that she runs away with is exactly like her father. He's drinking too much. He's not contributing. He's not present with the kids. She basically just recreated her exact dynamic. And that's something that happens so much. And it really goes back to that brain chemistry thing I was talking about, where our brains are constantly actively seeking out what it knows because it knows that it can survive what it knows. And that's why we go through these five steps to really rewire our brains, because when we give ourselves the these alternative experiences in a hypnotic state and we repeat them over and over again in that first person with the detail, with the emotion around it, then we create these new neural pathways and then our brain is like, oh wait, no, 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 I have this other experience and this experience is a lot better than the other one. So let's, let's go with this one, right? So Olivia was constantly seeking out people who were creating this dynamic that she had with her mom, which was too controlling. So when she was working through the attachment styles course, she noticed this patterning and she started seeking out men who didn't present with the warning signs of being very controlling and very jealous. And that's something like she was kind of intentionally going for the types of guys that she were opposite to what she was going for. And she has now been dating someone for a few months and they're really fucking happy together. So far, really good. He's not controlling at all. And she also is not going crazy. She's handling separation really, really well. And she noticed on her very first date that he was very different from what she usually would go for. So there we have it. These are the five steps to stop being a crazy fucking bitch and dating because hello, we all deserve to be in happy, fulfilling, stable relationships. Okay, before we wrap up, hopefully the camera doesn't fucking die. I just want to talk about some foods that make you blush. You know, it's the second to last segment of every show. And we always try to talk about foods that have nutrients that intersect with something we talked about in this week's episode. And this week we talked a lot about the nervous system and it really is the precursor to all of the other work. So I want to talk about some foods that support nerve 
function. I'm just going to run through these kind of quickly. So spinach, kale, and collard greens, because they're rich in nutrients like folate, which is important for nerve function and mood regulation. Avocado, um, rich in monosaturated fats, vitamin E, and potassium, which help with brain and nerve function. Turmeric contains curcumin, which is a compound with antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties, and it's been shown to support brain health, protect nerve cells, um, promote neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to form new connections and adapt to changes. Neuroplasticity is how basically all of the visualization stuff that I talked about in this episode work. Cacao. Cacao is rich in flavonoids, um, including one called epicatech. Tetchin. I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, it is shown to help with cognitive function and mood. Walnuts, because walnuts are rich in omega-3 fatty acids, which is essential for brain health and supports nerve functions. Now, I do want to talk about um, the type of omega-3s that are in walnuts. It's actually ALAs, which is a precursor to EPA and DHA. There's a lot of mixed literature on how easily or how well ALAs are converted to EPA and DHA in the body. There are some studies that suggest that it could be different in different ethnic groups, but that is why we're going to talk about the last one, which is kelp, which is rich in omega-3s, including EPA and DHA. So you don't even have to do the conversion in your body. Um, But the omega-3s are just so important for neurotransmitter signaling, for cognitive function, all the good nervous system stuff. And then really, I would actually recommend taking an omega-3 supplement. And I think Symbiotica has the best omega-3 supplement out there. It's a little liquid. You just squeeze 12, 14 pumps into your mouth and it's really yummy. Um, And it's not fishy at all. It's actually plant-based. So for all the vegans out there like myself, it's appropriate for you, but it's highly absorbable in the body. And now before we wrap up, we end the show, every show with gratitude. And the reason that we do that is because it's scientifically proven to make you a happier and more optimistic person. So I invite you as you listen to me list three things that I'm grateful for this week. I invite you to also list three things that you're grateful for this week. Just make sure to make them three new things, not the obvious things that are top of mind, you know, your apartment, your house, your pet, your parents, whatever. Make it more niche. Really scan your day or scan your week and find three new things that you're grateful for. Okay, I am grateful that Ozzy is here and taking on so much of the burden of Samantha. It has been the most soothing thing for my nervous system, humanly fucking conceivable. Like, it's literally like my skin is glowing different, like my bloat is on. My mood is better. My heart rate variability is different. Like everything is fucking different because he's back and I I could not be more grateful for it. And I'm terrified for when he leaves again. Um, I'm grateful that the camera hasn't died yet, despite the intermission with the whole lipstick on tit incident. <laughs> and I am grateful. I always want to say I'm grateful for you guys, but I can't do that because that would be repetitive. So I'm grateful. Oh my God. I'm grateful for, um, I have shot so many fucking sick recipes that I'm going to be posting in upcoming weeks. And I'm just going to announce this here right now. I'm working on uploading all of the recipes that I've developed in the past five years to the Blush Academy. They're all going to be available for you guys there. So Be on the lookout for that if you're in the Blush Academy. And honestly, I'm so fucking grateful for the Blush Academy because I still use it every fucking day and I rely on it so much. And per usual, I'm grateful for you guys. I'm grateful that you're here. The show wouldn't exist without you. Um, I love you guys so much, seriously. I'm just so grateful that there are like-minded people who care about this shit and who just want to be better, who just want to live better lives, be better versions of themselves, and that we can all be on this journey together because that's what life's really about. Okay, enough of the cheese. Love you guys. You know the drill. Share this episode. Rate, review, subscribe. Seriously, put it in your Instagram stories. Share it with people so that other people listen and we can grow this community. I love you guys so much. And if you want, you know, all of the things that we talked about in this episode, you can do it yourself. But if you want the recording so that you can just like 
pop in, close your eyes and do all that mental rewiring, do all the visualization and be guided through it. They're all available in the Blush Academy and there's links in the show notes to join the Blush Academy. Okay. Love you guys. Talk next week. Bye.